0: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Chaw. this is the Earn and Invest Podcast.
0: We used to call them party houses at the University of Michigan. A bunch of us students would rent a single-family home to live in, eight or nine of us. We lived there, studied, blasted music, and sometimes drank too much. We partied. This was happening in hundreds of homes surrounding campus each year. They took a beating. Holes in the walls, clogged toilets, torn up yards, and broken furniture. We students thought little about our landlords, the trials and tribulations of dealing with almost adult children the thoughtless manner in which we abuse their properties, nor the huge wealth these landlords were amassing catering to us. Well, my guest today has thought about it very much. Ryan Shaw is a full-time pharmacist and side-hustling real estate investor. He bought his first property in 2016 and now has created a personal real estate portfolio producing $17,610 per month through single-family home investing in California over the course of five years. And get this, he does it by owning only six properties. Ryan Shaw, welcome to Earn and Invest. You wrote me about being on the show and you said, what's really awesome is that real estate investing allowed me to reach a seven-figure net worth by age 28 and it will allow me to retire at 31 with a six-figure income. You're a full-time pharmacist, but you're a pretty young guy. What do you consider retirement? Because to me, managing real estate, especially a portfolio that's big enough to pay you that much a month, probably feels a little bit like a job.
1: Yeah, I would consider retirement the stage at which you get to basically choose what you want to do with your life and live life on your own terms, be able to uh, do what you want, where you want, with whoever you want to do it with, basically live a life of financial independence. So maybe you want to take a couple of weeks off to travel the world, right? Or maybe you just want to pursue a hobby or a passion project you are always interested in. For me, it'll probably look like maybe working as a pharmacist maybe still for like one or two days a week. For, but for the other time, I'll be pursuing something that I feel will lead to more impact on the world.
0: Let's talk about becoming a pharmacist. Was it a passion of yours? Because it hits me that you got into this real estate game early enough that you were thinking about this even from the beginning of your career. Why not just go right into real estate? Like, why do the pharmacy thing?
1: Yeah, there was several catalysts for it. So for one, my grandpa actually bought a couple of properties in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 50s. And then over time, we all knew, though, know, that the housing market there boomed and the rents went up like crazy. So not only was he able to cover his expenses with the rent, but also able to cover some of my college tuition and that of my brother's as well. So I realized that real estate is the best way to create generational wealth. Another story that kind of happened to me as well is when I first got started as a pharmacist, I kind of had a a manager that didn't really like me at all, for whatever reason, right? And he would do things like he would watch the cameras all day to try to catch me doing something wrong. He'll send me nasty emails. Eventually, I basically reported him for harassment complaint. But I realized after that, that I never wanted to be in a position or put my family in a position where all of my income and my financial security depends on one person's opinion of me or one source of income. So that's kind of the catalyst that drove me further to buy basically a single family home per year in a local college town. And then I rented out by the bedroom to maximize the rent in that area. And every bedroom I could add is an extra like $600 or $700 in rental income. So it allowed me to scale faster. And it's also great because it, I provide affordable student housing when charging more like $600 for a room. And they get their own private bedroom versus at the dormitories, they're living with someone else, right? And basically they're they're able to save a lot of money because they're only paid $600 versus the $1,200 that on-campus charges. And so it's a win-win situation for everyone.
0: I want to talk in a few moments about specifically what type of real estate you're interested in and how you scaled it. But before we do, let's go back to your grandpa. It almost sounds like real estate was in your blood or in your genes. Tell me about your relationship with him and what you kind of learned by watching him do what he did. Yeah, honestly,
1: it almost seems like he got lucky in a way, right? He just bought these properties, and they just skyrocketed over time. Now, not all real estate investors that happens to them, but you know, there's several ways I found. Like when I was you know looking at him, there are several ways that real estate builds wealth. It builds wealth through cash flow. So basically, your income minus your expenses, what what's left, you get a cash flow per month, a certain amount of money like a hundred, a couple hundred thousand, two thousand dollars per month. And then you also build wealth through appreciation. So when the the property goes up in price, you're actually leveraging your your rentals, right? If you do a 20% down payment. So the amount, the return on cash invested is actually much more. So if you have like a 3% appreciation, your actual return on investment is actually more like 15% because you're using a one to five leverage another way you build wealth is actually the equity pay down on the property so the tenants will pay down your mortgage for you as well and so that leads you to build up you know equity on on that property the last way you save money is through taxes so there's something called depreciation and there's a lot of deductions that real estate investors can take from their taxes because the government wants people to invest in real estate so it provides incentives in the tax law, for real estate investors to basically save money on the taxes.
0: So you had this role model. You saw your grandpa do it. You obviously know that there's lots of good reasons to be in real estate. Tell us about how you got into that first deal. And was it a good deal, the first piece of property you bought?
1: No, actually, it was a horrible deal because there's a lot of things that kind of came up on it. You know, I was new; I was just getting started, so I had no idea what to look for. I just knew I wanted to buy a house very close to campus and then rent it out to students. Well, fortunately, I realized later on that I should have done more due diligence. So this house was like a hundred year old house. So a lot of things just kind of with the construction during that time, a lot of things go old and they need to be replaced. So, for example, one thing that needed to be replaced was the whole HVAC system, which cost me about $18,000 or so. I also had to replace the sewage line because what happened is I got this call at like 10, 11 p.m. at night. And the the tenant was like, "Uh, there's sewage that's shooting out of the kitchen sink and the showers as well. And it's like all over the kitchen floor and it smells horrid. Right. So I was like calling up people at 11 p.m. on a weekend, trying to find somebody who would answer the phone and come to sanitize the area. Right. Eventually, I finally found someone. But what happened is they stuck the camera down the pipe and they said, hey, your, your pipe is actually broken. The, the whole pipe has roots sticking into it. And so I had to replace the whole sewage line, which cost me nine thousand dollars. And I, I realized later on, I could have just done the sewage line inspection on the home inspection phase, the escrow period, and based off of what was found on the inspection, I could go to the seller and say, hey, look, you know, this is what condition the house looks to be in. I probably will have to replace this line in the near future. Is there any way you can put some credit towards it, right? I learned now to do my due diligence and also not buy properties that's so
0: old. You know, it's an important point because I think a lot of newbies get stuck on this idea of trying to do their first deal perfectly and it holds them back because you kind of don't know what you don't know. How important is it to get it right that first deal versus learning as you go?
1: Yeah. I mean, ideally you would uh, have some knowledge beforehand to try to avoid the uh, new, newbie mistakes that a lot of people make. For that, what I would say is like, find a mentor. If you, for example, are interested in flipping houses, but you've never flipped before, find somebody who's flipped some houses and ask them to take you under their wing or, or, or sometimes they, you know, offer coaching. So make that investment to get some coaching from them. That's what I would recommend for new investors at least. But with that being said, you know I did make some expensive mistakes like over $30,000 and it taught me, it kind of brought me to where I am today. So even though I lost $30,000, those $30,000 mistakes taught me how to avoid like $100,000 mistakes, right? So everything adds up over time. You have to realize in real estate, nothing is wasted. And real estate is also very forgiving as well. For example, the house that I lost $30,000 on, it appreciated $162,000. So I made up all that money and I was able to take it out by using something called a HELOC. If you wanted to talk about that, we could. But it, basically, it's, it's a way to you know leverage your equity to buy more properties without coming out of pocket. Instead, you're taking the equity from your existing properties.
0: So that was deal one, and that was something like five years ago. Tell me how many properties you own now, and what's been the tempo? How often have you been buying?
1: Yeah, so my general model is basically buy one a year, one or two a year, whenever I can, whenever I have enough capital, or whenever I can leverage my existing equity. And I just slowly built it up on the side while I was working a full-time job. And a lot of this had to do with creating the systems and processes. So once you kind of create a model, you try to optimize it and automate it and then replicate it over and over and over. And the second, third, fourth, fifth time you do this, it's a lot easier. The first time's always the hardest. And then you have to realize just copying your own work, it's a lot quicker, it's easier to scale. And so that's what I did. I scaled it using that that system that I kind of created for myself, a system for marketing, a system for management, all that type of stuff. To, to get to where I am today, which is, like you said, it's making $17,610 uh, per month in rental income. So it's a multiple six-figure portfolio.
0: I want to talk about that income in a moment, but before I do, you're self-managing these properties. You're finding the renters, you're fixing problems, or at least calling the contractors into fix problems. Are you using any management help?
1: Yeah. So it is pretty much self-managed. So I have a team of contractors, like a a lot of contractors that I can call up and count on. So if one person's busy, like maybe has like three fence projects to do during the week, I can go to somebody else. I kind of have contractors who specialize in particular things, like one who will like do the flooring all the time and put in the vinyl plank. I'll have one who's, you know, good with landscaping, all that type of stuff. So Basically, I can, when a tenant texts me that an appliance is broken, for example, I can just forward that message to the contractor. Other people, they use like management softwares. I actually have some clients that I'm teaching that use like Tenant Cloud, for example. And it's nice because it'll tell the tenants when their rent is late. It'll also charge them for it. It'll also uh, allow the tenants to type in what's, you know, broken basically. And then it'll send that message to the contractor. So there's several ways to manage it if you want to self-manage your rentals. And like I said, I did this while well I was a full-time pharmacist. So it's actually not that hard once you get down like the marketing and how to like empower your tenants.
0: So let's talk about your income. You're talking about making over $17,000 a month in income on just six properties. This is not normal. I mean, I've owned real estate myself. I own four properties. I think I was making five to six thousand a month. I know lots of people who own dozens of properties and don't take home that much. Talk to me about what specific type of properties you look for and what kind of people you rent to.
1: Yeah, so the first thing is always location. It's always going to be location for real estate investing. Um, so I want to be very close to the school, five minute to seven minute walk or drive from campus. Because that's the number one thing that students are looking for. That's client essentially. And the second thing I want to look for is kind of like what condition the house is in, right? I don't want to buy another 100 year old house where I'm going to have to replace like half of the house by the end of five years, right? The third thing I kind of look for is actually square footage, believe it or not, because I want to try to buy a house that's like a three bedroom, two bathroom house, get it for like a pretty good price, right? And then add the fourth and fifth bedroom. By either converting like the family room into a bedroom, that's a very simple conversion, by the way, you just put in furniture, essentially for a bedroom, or maybe dividing like an existing living room in half, if, if it's a very large living room, I might do that. Or maybe, you know, the office becomes a bedroom. But every time I can add an extra bedroom, that's an extra 600 to $800 in rent. So if you add just two bedrooms, that's already 1400 or $1,500 per, per month more in rent. And that's where the numbers come from. Because if I can get a five-bedroom house, charge $600 per bedroom, that's about $3,000 a month. The current one I'm living in, I actually have five bedrooms in it. I rent out to five other uh, tenants and one of them's a couple. So they're paying a little bit more, $3,650 per month right now. And the mortgage is $2,300. And I'm also living here. So uh, when I move out, it's going to be more around $4,500 or so for a $2,300 mortgage.
0: Now, I remember when I was in college, when we wanted to go rent a house for a year, we had to like go find five or six or eight guys together to go rent it en masse. Am I correct in saying that you will rent out rooms separately to different people who might not even know each other? That's a little bit true, but I also
1: try to pair up people whenever possible, kind of like a roommate finder system. So what I do is like I'll have a house if I get like a a lot of pharmacy students, for example, I'll have like a pharmacy house, right? Because they all take the same classes. They're studying together, all of that. I'll have like an engineering house and then a dental house, dentist house, right? So that kind of makes it so they're, you know, at least all in the same classes have similar interests. And so most likely they're going to, you know, get along just fine. I would say once a year or so, I will have some tenant versus tenant conflict where, you know, one tenant like is very messy and they didn't do their dishes and it's like stacking up and then you get complaints about that. But it only happens, like I said, like once a year. And if you empower them correctly, you know, the, system, the situation kind of just diffuses.
0: You've mentioned that a few times, this term empowering your tenants. What exactly do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so it means basically not solving the problems for them and setting, leading them to solve the problem and walking them through the process and being compassionate about it too. So the, the first thing I would do is if a tenant complained about another guy, And he said, yeah, his dishes are all over the place and it's smelly in his room and all that stuff, whatever. I'll go to the guy who complained and say, hey, why don't you do this first? Have a face-to-face discussion with the guy, right? State why you're upset. Then come up with an actionable plan you can kind of implement within the next couple of weeks. Then implement the plan. And then two weeks later, if you still have problems with each other, you can go ahead and contact me. Nine times out of 10, after I say that, I never have them contact me again. And that's just kind of like walking them through the process of how to solve conflict on their own, right? Because when they become adults, they're going to have to be able to solve conflict. So it's actually a good skill to have, to have them develop. Rather than if I were to talk to the guy directly, you know, who, who they're complaining about, the guy will go like, oh, these guys are basically tail-tailing, telling the landlord behind my back, making me look bad. And they get upset. You know, I I had that happen before it got, it blew up because I talked to him myself. But he just got really upset about the other tenants. And, you know, that didn't solve the problem at all. He just got uh, more and more angry at them. And it, it didn't, he wasn't very, he wasn't focused on trying to solve the problem. He was focused on trying to get back at the other tenants, essentially. So when that happened, I eventually had to go like to the parent and say, hey, can you help me out here? This is what's happening. But for the most part, it's a lot of the solution. Everything can be solved if you can walk the tenant through the process of what they should be doing to solve a particular problem.
0: Sounds a lot like parenting to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. But what's nice is I batch my email now. So like I have a templated email. And I'll just, you know, when they complain, I'll just shoot that out to them. And it's the same email and it works the same way.
0: As you heard in my introduction, I mean, I had a lot of experience renting houses when I was in college. I did it, you know, for three or four years. Aren't college rentals a little bit risky? I mean, we really beat those houses up. I mean, how do you manage that?
1: Yeah, I think everyone's afraid that they're going to get like party tenants, right? Especially for college, right? Because you think of frat houses and all that and alcohol going everywhere, whatever. But what I do is I actually invest in like top colleges where students are more serious about their studies. Think about like John Hopkins or Princeton or Yale or whatever. And I, you know, those are colleges where the students have to be well-rounded and they have to be really focused on their studies. They probably have to have like a 4.0 GPA, straight A's and all that. So they're taking their studies very seriously. The other thing I do is also look for colleges that have an opportunity for like professional schools. So like pharmacy school, dental school, medical school, I'll bring in pharmacy students, dental students, etc. Right. And those students, even if I have a few mature students, and some of them are less mature, the more mature students will basically lead the, the group to be make sure that the house is, you know, quiet and, and a good environment for studying for the students. Um, so I base, I mainly choose like graduate students, maybe third or fourth year students whenever possible. And then again, pair them up so that there's less conflict and all of that. But yeah, I, I focus on high quality tenants.
0: Don't you, uh, did I see it mentioned uh, something that you call the prime screening method? Do you have an advanced screening method to make sure that you kind of get high quality tenants? Tell us a little bit about that. Exactly. It's called the prime
1: method because it's trying to find prime tenants for your house, right? So the P stands for placement of advertisements. So you want to place your advertisements where they hang out. Think like school bulletin boards, Facebook housing groups, Facebook college groups, maybe like Starbucks, for instance. But placing your ad where they're not hanging out is basically like putting uh, bait in an empty pond. You're not going to ca- catch any you know, high-quality tenants or the tenants that you're targeting, right? So you really have to think about where do these college students hang out How can I connect with them? How can I, you know, bring them into my house? The R stands for reviewing social media. So once they reach out to me, they do Facebook or again, through like a uh, a bulletin board ad or whatever and email me, I'll look through their social media profile. So R reviewing social media. So I'll look through like their Facebook, Instagram, see if they have any like smoking, drugs, alcohol, that type of deal. Maybe raves. I, you know, try to stay away from that type of tenant. I stands for identifying the type of tenant. So is this someone who's constantly getting angry or asking for cheaper rent? Are they difficult to communicate with? Maybe they're very picky. They might have problems down the line. You know, I try to stay away from a tenant who's going to do something like that. M stands for measuring responsiveness. So the more responsive they are in general, I find the more responsible they are. Like if they're getting their paperwork back to you very quickly and filling out all the lines and everything, they're very professional. You know, that's the type of tenant I'm looking for versus a tenant who doesn't respond for weeks. You know, Let's say they pay late rent and you text them or email them and they don't get back for another couple of weeks. Well, that's a problem, right? But then E stands for insuring proof of income. So I always, it's not really the students who are paying the rent, it's the parents. So that's really great because you're never going to get unpaid rent because the parent's not going to risk their child being evicted from the campus because they didn't pay their rent, right? So I do have to check like bank statements or a FICO score from the parents, uh, just like an estimated FICO, or I can see like pay stubs or something like that, just to show that there's proof of income. The other thing that works for students is they take out student loans sometimes. So if they can show their student loan document, or if they can show financial aid, they have plenty of methods of paying rent. So that's the great part about this method is you never have to worry about evictions for a non-payment tenant or you never have to even worry about vacancies, too. That's another thing. People think there, there might be vacancies, but actually there's not. Because what I do is a one year lease. And then during summer, uh, they can rent out to summer school students and there's a crowd of, of people, you know, summer school students that they can rent to. And so I'll either help them find some summer school students or they can help like bring in a friend that is interested or something like that. But I have like a hundred, I have a hundred percent occupancy for all my houses actually from August for this year, at least August 2021 to August 2022.
0: You obviously learned through experience, you've now been doing this for quite a while with lots of tenants. Share with us a challenging tenant story. Any doozies where someone was particularly difficult to work with?
1: Yeah. So there is this guy, he smoked a lot of pot. His roommates weren't happy about that. Uh, He also threw this party and the tenant called me up and said, hey, he's got like 80 people here, right? Or he texted me. It was like, he's like 80 people uh, he invited to this you know party. I don't think the house can house that many people. Can we have a talk with them, right? And so what I did, again, was contacted him directly. And this was the problem. I, I contacted him directly and said, hey, all the guys are telling me you have this party planned. You know, that's not OK and stuff like that. So that's where it kind of blew out of proportion. And I realized after that, I mean, eventually I had to go to the parent and and that's what solved it. But what I learned again was use that tenant empowerment. Just have them kind of, you know, work it out themselves first, trust in them and walk them through the process. And again, be compassionate about it. And ever since I used that, I've never had that problem
0: again. So we've talked about screening tenants and difficult tenants Tell us a little bit about screening properties. What are some of the big red flags that you try to stay away from?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things. For flips, I kind of have to be a little bit careful because if there's any work that was done unpermitted or maybe it wasn't done up to code, right, I have to worry, are they really using the right materials? Are they really doing this correctly so that the house is not going to like fall down on somebody or something like that, God forbid. So I try to stay away from flips if possible, but depends on, you know, what I see and And the home inspection and what the contractors after looking at it kind of think. Other red flags, I would say kind of like if it's like been on the market several times and it's like on and off, on and off, on and off, there's a chance like maybe the seller is just not willing to negotiate on one piece of the house. Maybe there's like a leaky roof or something like that, right? A couple other things I look for on the walkthrough is I'll actually test the house. So I'll I'll turn on and off all the sinks and flush the toilets, check the hot water, make sure the electricals are working by like plugging in my phone. I'll also look at the ceilings to see if there's any moisture. If there's any like water damage or moisture on the ceilings, that's an indication that there's probably been a roof leak in the past or it might be an ongoing leak. Those are a few things I look for. And I kind of trust my real estate agent to also give me advice as well. And that you know they're they're basically the buyer's agent you don't have to pay them commission so you might as well use a real estate agent who knows that market and knows what the average quality of houses are in that market and what a good deal looks like in that market and use that to your advantage so those are a couple things
0: that i do We are talking to Ryan Shaw. He is a full-time pharmacist and real estate investor. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode of Earn and Invest is sponsored by BetterHelp. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com earn and get on your way to being your best self. Listen. A common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. But sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great. And therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all your relationships. I know, because when I went to BetterHelp, one of the relationships I wanted help with was that with my father. You see, my father died when I was 7 years old, and I had a lot of unresolved issues. My therapist at BetterHelp was actually really good at helping me talk about those issues and start to find answers that normally I would have tried to find with my father, but since he was no longer around, I had to find them on my own, and having a therapist was incredibly impactful in that journey. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com slash earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash earn. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to health tech, which is tackling the $60 billion global IVF and fertility treatment market, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest early. RCROD is the fastest growing venture capital investment community. RCROD's credit investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies. Now you can invest in Future Family, who's providing millions of families with access to affordable treatment through buy now, pay later financing. Future Family powers 15% of the U.S.'s fertility clinics. Last year, they grew patients served by 300%. Invest today at our crowd. Invest in future family at OURCROWD.com slash EAI. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Ryan Shaw. He is a full-time pharmacist and side hustling real estate investor. He bought his first property in 2016 and now has created a personal real estate portfolio producing $17,610 per month. Ryan, let's talk about your type of investing. You invest on, in single family homes on college campuses. How scalable is this model?
1: Yeah. So what's really great about this is again, if you can put in like two extra bedrooms or one extra bedroom, it's an extra 600 or $1,400 in rental income. And so that extra $1,400 actually adds up like over a year, that's what, $16,000 or something like this. And you can basically reinvest it over and over and over. And there's another method you can use is once you start building up equity on the property as well, you can take out the equity using a HELOC and that's what I did. I basically took out a $100,000 HELOC and that HELOC paid the down payment on my fourth and fifth properties. So basically I paid for only one property, but that that same cash was able to basically, you know, build that equity and then buy two more properties for me. So I basically put one down payment and bought three properties by by doing that, essentially. It's also uh, great once you have your system in place and everything. What's really cool is you get referrals from your tenants. So let's say you have like 28 tenants, right? And each of them has three friends, right? That's like almost 90 people who would be interested in your property. And so I just go to my tenants nowadays. I don't even have to do my own marketing. I and mean, a lot of times they even approach me. They'll say, hey, I know you have a, a place, uh, a couple of places around campus because you kind of build your reputation. Right. And then, you know, the, the current tenants will say, hey, I have a couple of friends who want to stay in here next year. Is it OK if I bring them in? And so basically, it's a lot easier to fill your bedrooms once you achieve a certain scale. And so there's not much you have to do, like, you know, marketing's like the main piece at the very beginning. But afterwards, you just rely on referrals. And then management is just all about having uh, contractors that you can trust in place and having a couple of them and some backup ones in case uh, one is not available.
0: So you've been mentioning using a HELOC to fund some of your purchases. A HELOC is a line of credit based on the equity in your previous property. Tell me, you ever worry about leverage? At what point will you say, okay, I've hit the limit of how leveraged I want to be?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question because some people are like, should I just pay off my whole house so I don't, you know, I get more cash flow because I'm not essentially paying a mortgage anymore. Or should I just buy as many houses as I can? And anytime I have like money in my bank account, I'll basically buy another house, right? There's people both in parties, you know, there's uh, two different arguments for that. For me, I kind of I go a little bit in between. I like using HELOCs because you take it out at like a five percent interest rate or something. It's a variable rate, but here's the thing: even though it's variable, and it, it usually it will be capped at a certain point if you go with the right company. But if you're making like a like a fifteen or twenty percent cash on cash return for that same money that you're taking out at a five percent interest rate, well, you're making the spread on that. So twenty percent minus five percent, you're making a fifteen percent return on that money. So it makes sense to put that money to work. Otherwise, it's just sitting there as debt equity. It's making zero dollars. And the the most important thing for somebody who's building wealth for themselves and their family and their community, the most important thing you want to do is have your money make more money. Right. You want to put your money to work, essentially, and just having that. Equity just sit there, it's kind of a waste. And so what I recommend for a lot of people when they're just getting started, try to leverage as much as you can actually. Try to get to like four houses as soon as possible. Once you're at four houses, now you can kind of sit back and say, okay, maybe I'll pay back this one a little bit faster or that one. But once you achieve that scale of like having four houses, you know, you you really have a system in place. You have, like I said, the referral thing going on. And if you have four houses with the student housing method, and it's $2,500 in rent per month per house, because, you know, four times 600 is about 2,500, then you're making $10,000 per month in uh, rental income. So that's kind of at the stage where you already had six figures and you can kind of start deleveraging or you know not leveraging as much as as you necessarily need to but at the same time i do keep HELOCs open in case i see a really good deal on the market and i want to jump on it right away that HELOC provides that flexibility i can take out the cash just like that right i can wire it if i wanted to and then I get to the jump on that property if i know it's going to make like a 20 30% return on my cash invested
0: let's talk existential threats to real estate to real estate investors <laughs> I remember I live right by Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, and in the midst of COVID, in the pandemic, at the beginning of the year, they actually told students not to come to campus.
1: That is true. I would
0: think that COVID would have had a radical effect on your real estate portfolio, given how tightly it was connected to the university system, but that wasn't the case.
1: Yeah, it wasn't actually. It's it's very interesting. I thought it was going to shut down my whole business. I was I was like, oh man, I have ten thousand like ten thousand dollars per month doing mortgages. What am I gonna do? Like, am I gonna have to pay all this out of pocket? Because I had these tenants coming to me saying, hey, can I cancel my lease? Classes are all online, so I was panicking for a good week or so. And then eventually, I was like, you know what? I can solve this. You know, I that the, the, there's no use just like keep complaining about it and worrying about it and getting into a victim mindset, right? Instead, I started asking like, how can I solve this? What are some things that I can do to make sure that I put my best faith effort into getting students into these houses and getting them, you know, comfortable and, and loving where they're living and paying the price, whatever price their budget allows. So what I did is I talked, I actually reached out to each one of them individually who asked me to cancel their lease. And some of them didn't, by the way, some of them were like, no, it's fine. You know, they didn't even like reach out to me and ask to cancel. Right. So some of them were fine. The ones that asked to cancel, though, they I was like, okay, if you want it, like if you want, I could offer like a $100 discount. Would that fit your budget? And, you know, you could st- stay at the house, study with your friends. And, uh, you know, a lot of people when they stay at, home with their families, they're not getting a good enough, like the best educational experience as well, because it's kind of a harder study environment to study at home. And, you know, a lot of students actually did complain about that during the pandemic. And so like, if they study at the house, if they live at the house, it's a different environment. They can study with their classmates, you know, they can bounce ideas off of each other. So it's still a good plus, right, to focus on on their work, right? So what I did is, again, some of a lot of them, I would say like 30% or 40% of them were like, yeah, sure, I'll I'll stay with a discount. Right. The other thing I did though was also reach out and do a lot more marketing. So I put ads up in way more places. I marketed once a week, you know, once or twice a week on wherever area it was at. Then I also, what was really cool is I reached out to these students directly and said, hey, do you want to get on a conversation? We could talk about your needs, your budget, you know, you know, what you'd like at the house, what you're looking for, and that type of stuff. And that got me to learn about what the you know customer wants, right? What the tenant, the student tenant wants. And also because I made that personal connection with them, they're like, hey, this guy is an actual human being and he cares about you know me and in my living condition, my living environment, so I might as well sign up with him because he he reached out he seems very personable, you know versus like a property management company that I put in my repair request and it doesn't get answered for like two months or something like that. they know that i'm I'm there for them, right, and I have that quality and level of service that I want to provide for them, so just reaching out directly and just doing like a call a quick call with them actually got me fully occupied with, I think at the time it was like 23 tenants. So I had all 23 bedrooms still filled, <laughs> filled with tenants. And it was a slight discount instead of making, I think it was like $10,700 per month in rental income. I was making more like $9,300 in month per rental income. So it was like $1,400 per month deduction. But like with all the cash flow that I was still making, you know, I, I was doing fine. I wasn't worried at all, you know, not being able to pay the mortgages or anything like that. So, yeah, that's that's the story. It was, it was quite scary at first, but then I basically pivoted. I asked myself, what's how can I solve this? Right. And so there's this really good book called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. It's for anybody who wants to read more about, you know, if you encounter an obstacle, what are some ways you can kind of think around
0: it or, you know, angle around it? Right. So, what keeps you up late at night worrying about your properties? And if you're just not that kind of person, let me state it as what do you think is the biggest threat to real estate investors today?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people worry about eviction, squatting, and like non payment of rent, or maybe like moving out and not paying rent or something like that. Those are common fears. I would say, you know, It's all about choosing the right tenants. So your tenants, like your Achilles heel, right? They make or break your deal, right? Essentially. And that's for all real estate, except for maybe storage, housing, and maybe Wells Fargo, You know, investing in the Wells Fargo or like a Walgreens or something like that. But for the most part, there's always going to be a tenant, right? So if you kind of develop your management skills, you develop your marketing skills, and you know how to Vet and screen tenants, you won't have that type of issue. And I've never had to deal with evictions, non payment of rent. Again, the closest I got to non payment of rent is I did let somebody off a little bit early during COVID because they're like, yeah, you know, I don't need to be on campus. So I let them off like a month early. That was our compromise. But then we were able to find them a subletter, anyways, during the time they weren't there. But yeah, sorry, I'm going on a tangent. But yeah, basically, yeah, you just want to focus on having the marketing system in place, knowing where to find your high quality tenants and then screening them appropriately. And then you're not going to have to deal with nonpayment rent or evictions. And the other thing about the student housing system, again, it's the parents paying the rent. So you you just don't have to deal with that unpaid rent or eviction prop process because no parent is going to stop paying rent for their student and just risk their child getting evicted from where they're staying at in college, right? Especially at the colleges that I'm you know, investing in.
0: So I imagine there are a number of people listening right now that are saying, okay, what Ryan is doing sounds pretty interesting. Sounds like a good way to make money. Most people get caught up on that first step, right? There's so many possibilities. How do I begin? If someone is interested in recreating the path you've created, what do you think is that kind of first essential step to take? First essential step is to uh, call up a
1: real estate agent. First, like find a market. You're, it doesn't have to be a perfect market, right? But first, find a market that has a pretty high-end college near it, right? And it's not like a community college. And then call up a real estate agent in the area because that's really what's going to get you started. When you start doing home walkthroughs, when you start um, actually seeing the properties and everything, you're going to get excited about real estate. And it's going to kind of you, you can use that momentum to kind of push forward to getting a deal, closing on that deal and everything. A lot of times uh, what people fall for is something called I call like first offer syndrome. When their first deal doesn't go through, they get really upset and they get discouraged. And so a lot of them will quit at that stage. I've actually seen multiple people quit because of that. But what's really important in real estate is that you be persistent. And as long as you buy, again, in a nice area like a near high end college and you know how to do your marketing, you know, everything kind of just works itself out. What I would say is if you can find like a mentor and try to use the systems and processes that they put into place, you can figure it out on your own. It's a little, again, it's a little bit, because for me, like I did lose like a lot of money, right? So that's why I I am teaching others how to do this without losing money. But again, it's, it's best to just get started rather than not get started at all. Even if you get started and lose some money, it's better than just not getting started at all, for sure, by far. And for real estate, it's it's best to buy now than wait, rather than wait than buy. There's a there's a common saying, you know, don't wait, then buy, then instead buy now, then wait, because it's like planting seeds and then letting them grow into trees, right? You don't want to wait and to plant that seed, you don't want to wait like three years for the market to cool off or the soil to be perfect before you plant that seed. You want to plant it now and then just water it and you know you'll figure it out over time, right? Maybe there's like some bad weather or whatever, but eventually that that seed is going to grow into a great tree that will uh build your wealth for you, your family, your community if you want to give back like one of my goals is to give back hundred thousand dollars a year eventually to medical research that I um, support and charities and all that.
0: How much cash, if any, do you need to start with? I mean, that's a big question. I hear people say all the time, well, I want to get into real estate, but I just, I don't have the money right now.
1: Yeah. So there's something called a house hack. So that's what I'm doing right now. Actually, I'm living in the master bedroom of this house and I'm renting out to a uh, five other tenants. So there's four other bedrooms. One of them I rented to a couple and then there's three other Housemates. But I again I chose the housemates. So I really make sure I vet them and everything. And we get along really great. And I would say, you know, if you do a house hack, you can do a three and a half or three percent or five percent down payment and basically still be able to cover the mortgage because again, if you add those bedrooms, you're you'll make enough rental income to basically live for free. And a three percent down payment is hardly anything, like three percent of uh five hundred thousand is only fifteen thousand dollars i mean it, it sounds like a lot to save up, but you know in the long run, it's actually not that bad and and California market, everything's like super high priced. I'm sure in other markets it's more like maybe three hundred or two hundred thousand dollar houses and so like a five percent on that's only ten thousand to to again maybe fifteen thousand or so.
0: Tell us some of the resources that have really affected your trajectory if we're out here, we're listening to you, we're excited about this, where are some of the places we can kind of go, places that have an impact on you in learning about real estate so that we can start this kind of journey? Yeah,
1: Bigger Pockets is definitely one of the best resources out there. They have forums, they got places you can actually connect with people directly. I'm on there so you can connect with me directly if you are interested. There's also books that they write. There's a lot of great books on getting started. Uh, real estate investing, like the rental property guide by Brandon Turner is really great. There's also a couple like books for mindset too. What I really like is the millionaire real estate investor by Gary Keller. That's probably one of the most eye-opening books that I read about real estate and it really shows you how the, he breaks down the systems and he actually breaks down r- actual numbers as well. Like if your rent is this much, you know, this is how much the house is worth. This is what you're you're getting on your load. This is what basically what's going to look like in 10 years. And pretty much every single chart he has in there after 10 years, you're essentially a millionaire in real estate. It's not that difficult to become a millionaire in real estate. In fact, I hit millionaire status or whatever in like five years or so. So, you know, my equity that's built up on the property is about 1.2 million at this point. And it's just, again, just through reinvesting that cash flow, leveraging that equity whenever possible. And they're just kind of sitting and waiting. It was a crazy housing market this last year. So don't get me wrong. It was a little bit of luck as well. But uh, you know, housing is always very stable and everyone needs a place to live. And so I think it's a great way for a lot of people to get started. And especially this co-living situation, because there's a lot of lack of inventory I think we're kind of just moving toward a little bit more co-living, you know, especially millennials. They're willing to kind of have housemates for a couple of years before they eventually put a down payment on their final house. Right. And, you know, there's lots of things popping up. There's Airbnb, of course, but there's also things like pad split and like home homeroom, I think it's called. But everyone's I feel like people are kind of moving towards a co-living situation because people pay less money. And it's a lot more affordable to stay in a bedroom for a few years, especially for people who have high student loan debt. And it just makes sense. It's like a kind of a solution. I wouldn't say like a, a final solution, but it kind of helps solve some of the affordability problems we're having in some of the major cities and all of that.
0: A moment ago, you pretty much mentioned this idea that it's fairly easy to become a millionaire through real estate and we've mentioned a few times now you're making over seventeen thousand a month on your six properties. Mm-hmm. How do you know when enough is enough? Like, when are you going to say, "Okay, this is enough money I'm making, and it's time to stop buying properties?"
1: Well, it depends on what your impact, what type of impact you want on the world. For me, I'm making and building that wealth. So eventually I can start my own medical research company or support one. And one of the things that I was really interested in is developing a care for allergies because I had a life-threatening anaphylactic reaction when I was two years old. I almost died. My mom said. And so basically, I always wanted to find a cure for it because we still don't have a cure for peanut allergies, cashew allergies, whatever, right? And so I could still die if I eat the wrong food, right? So it's actually, it's very scary. It's a personal thing. But also, you know, I think it will benefit a lot of people out there. So it depends on how much impact you want on the world. For something like that, it helps to have a lot of wealth built up, right? To make uh, more impact, to, to, you know, have more fulfilling life or live a bigger life or more, you know, a higher impact life, like I said, having money, it's not going to, you know, be everything, but it's certainly going to help, right? Certainly going to help.
0: Well, Ryan, I wanted to thank you for being on the show today. You know, I get two very valuable lessons from what you've told us today. One is, you know, there are a million different ways to do real estate and lots of ways to succeed. And you know, it's a forgiving way to make money. You can go out there, you can make mistakes, you can do the wrong thing, you can learn as you go and still be very successful. That was point one. The other point, which you just made right now is, look, you may or may not love real estate itself, but it's probably not your purpose in life, but the cash flow it provides can relieve you from some of those other things you do, like maybe a job either you don't like or don't wanna spend every moment doing, but also provide the fuel and the energy to do something that really is purposeful and meaningful to you. In your case, it's funding medical research and learning about allergies. I wanna end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where we can find you if we wanna learn more. Tell us, Ryan, what is going on with you over the next few months?
1: Yeah, so one thing I'm doing actually as I'm trying to give back to be the people who are interested in getting into real estate investing because I know for a lot of new investors it's super intimidating there's just like a lot of steps you you have to get down and you feel like it's it's overwhelming at some point. So what I do is I actually coach people through the process. I just do one-on-one coaching and if if you're interested in like signing up for my free PDF, which kind of goes through my it's like an ebook, it goes through my method for student housing. And if you're interested in getting into student housing, you can reach me at www.newbierealestateinvesting.com. That's www.newbierealestateinvesting.com/slash/guide, and newbie is spelled N-E-W-B-I-E. And that guide will, again, will show the method I go through. But if you sign up for my newsletter as well, I kind of show you uh, exact strategies that I'm kind of using right now, methods, and kind of what, like my story, like how I got started, some of the mistakes I made so that you can avoid them in the future. So you can reach out to me there if you're interested. But, you know, I'm excited to help people out. I, you know, I love uh, walking people through the process of the student housing market because i think it's a win-win situation for everyone honestly right the students are saving a lot of money and you're able to build your wealth for you your family and your community
0: this has been the earn and invest podcast on behalf of myself doc g i'd like to thank ryan that's a wrap Hey, everybody, just a little update on our ground team. The ground team is a chance for you, an earn and invest listener, to become part of my team for my book launch of Taking Stock. That's going to be during the first week of August. We already have almost 100 participants. If you sign up to be part of the ground team, you are going to get extra video. You're going to get snapshots into the book early, and you're going to get other content and blogs Come part of this community help me get this book out again we're starting early because the ground team needs to be in place by early august i hope you check it out just go to earn and right up at the top of the page there'll be a place for you to learn more about the ground team come become part of the earn and invest and taking stock team thanks for listening So thank you. Awesome. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. I think, Tell me, great, is yeah. there anything we didn't cover? Was there anything like you were like, oh, I really would have liked to talk about? Let me think about that. I would say, no, I
1: mean, we covered, I think a lot of people like the stories, right? So I try to focus on that or, or the acronym. It seems like people like that too. So it's nice to have an acronym. But uh, yeah,
0: no, we covered the main thing. That's pretty much everything I would say. Yeah. I think that bit we talked about in the last part mm-hmm. to me is super interesting. So, the truth of the matter is there are a dime a dozen real estate, you know, stories of people who started and built a, a real estate empire, right? That's a, a pretty oh, yeah. common story. I think what makes your story interesting is twofold. One is the college campus thing. Well, threefold. One is the college campus thing, which right. kind of was out there and I knew about. The other is how much money you were made, able to make off of so few properties, which, again, I was out there and able to see and know about. But actually, the third part is just as interesting to me. And it's not something I don't see you, at least in the little bit I've seen of your stuff talk about much is the why that's really super interesting to me and i think as you develop yourself in doing lots more podcast interviews etc don't forget that third part this idea that you had an anaphylactic reaction and that spurs some of your wish to be economically successful really ties a nice bow on your story in my opinion and don't be afraid to talk about that i think that's um super interesting
1: yeah I mean, yeah, I totally appreciate that. Yeah, that uh, that's true. That's true. That's definitely something I want to expand more on. And I, I thank you for the suggestion.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a big part of your story. And it, like I said, it, it really, because again, you know, so I'm a financial podcast, but I kind of pride myself on the fact that I like to go past just the finances, right, to get into a little bit more of the You've deeper that story. Aspect. But that sets you apart in lots of ways, right? This idea that you have this driving interest in doing something else and funding medical research really is very is a unique twist on the basic real estate story. I, yeah. I, I bought this many units True. in this many months. This yeah, month, I have
1: a hundred dollars. This much cash. Like, plan, okay. Right. <laughs>
0: I'm not saying that uh, your story yeah. again is interesting. Even that story in your case is interesting because again, the college campus is interesting, and how much you're able to make on so few units is also very interesting. Anyway. Right. But don't forget that third part. I just I think it's cool. I think it's it's a valid, very valid well, I, part of the
1: story. Yeah, I think so. It's very interesting to hear people's whys, their actual whys, but
0: yeah, because otherwise, I mean. There are, I know there are people who love real estate, who all they want to do is real estate. But the truth of the matter is we like it because it makes us money and it mm-hmm. frees us. Mm-hmm. But, but then the, the second part of that story is what does it make us money and free us to do? And that. They, yeah.
1: What yeah. do you do after that too? I spent yeah. a lot of time thinking about that yeah. for sure.
0: Well, thank cool. you for reaching out. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it was great. I enjoyed meeting you and I enjoyed uh, being on the podcast. It was a great flow and everything. I think you got something uh, really good going. And thanks, thanks for, like, you know, if, you know, helping get the word out to people. From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top trending weather-related story of the day, seven days a week. You can learn a lot in just a few minutes with stories about impending hurricanes, winter storms, or even what not to miss in the night sky. So listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.